Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. And welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We're your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the often exciting and scandalous sides of history. Uh, we are back at you this summer near Independence Day to talk about a pretty controversial American election. What better for Fourth of July than to talk about an election when everything went kind of cuckoo bananas? <laughs> but yeah. before we jump into it, let's introduce ourselves. As always, I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we are the Rebecca's and we are here. It is summer. It is, you know, summer in Washington, which is, I don't know if I call it fun, but there's a lot going on. The heat is upon us. We would love if you're coming here this summer, if you're taking a summer trip to come and join us on a tour. Lots and lots and lots of great things happening around Washington, D.C. Thank you. And a big shout out to our patrons. We love our patrons. You guys are amazing. The wind beneath our podcast wings. We always have your, or we try to always have your patron exclusive episode. So be sure to be checking your patron feeds. If you're not a patron, it's never too late. Become a patron, get extra podcast goodness every month. All the time. Yes. If you're all the time. Summer or fall plans take you to DC, come on a tour. We love, we've met so many of our podcast fans on our tours, and it's been really great. And we'd love to meet more of you. It's just so exciting. And so thank you guys for sticking with us. And we're back with regular pods for a while. It's really great. The busiest time of the year is um a little bit past, although summer is still very hot. And uh, we're going to talk today about the corrupt bargain. <laughs> uh, and I'm just going to drop my like Broadway nerdness for a moment. <laughs> for those of, for the uninitiated, there was an emo punk pop musical called Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson that came out. Oh, I don't know, about 13, 14 years ago. And there's a song called The Corrupt Bargain. And anytime this comes up in reading, in Twitter, and talking in these show notes, I hear it specifically as it sounds on the original Broadway cast recording. So for me, it's The Corrupt Bargain with like the little piano trill that goes along with it. <laughs> and if you haven't listened to it, get the to Spotify or Apple Music. It's actually what we're going to talk about in probably 45 minutes. They distill down to a pretty catchy two-minute song. And shout out to, or well, rest in peace, really, to Michael Friedman for making that happen, to kind of take this and make it a catchy little ditty on Broadway. So shout out to Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, a criminally underrated musical. I love it. 
Um, Andrew Jackson is someone that needs more musicals, I think. Imagine him as an emo rock star, and it, it that's, the, that's the show. Pretty much what he was, really. <laughs> so... It kind of worked. It kind of worked. So background to this, a good companion episode is Henry Clay, because we're going to talk about a bit about him. Henry Clay is our first season way back in the day, um, but it's a, a fun episode. We also did an episode about the Petticoat Affair, which mentions Jackson, but by that time he's already president, so it's a little after these events. But I think we've mentioned the corrupt bargain at least once uh, on a couple of different pods uh, as we've kind of gone through. Yeah, you know, because John Quincy Adams definitely has popped up a few places. Henry Clay, in addition to his own episode, his name is just, he's just a huge part of like 19th century politics. So Clay comes up a lot. We've touched on John C. Calhoun briefly when we've done things like the Petticoat Affair. So some of the people that will be coming up in this episode, you've definitely heard about. Yes. And so we're going to start with the election of 1824. So this is like our sneaky way of getting in another election episode right here. This is going to be the 10th general presidential election. So it's really important to emphasize just how new this whole election idea is. Um, It is also going to be the first general election where most white men can vote. They've eliminated the property requirement that comes in the Constitution. Uh, And so now if you are a white man over the age of majority, uh, you can vote in the election. So it has expanded the franchise Still is quite narrowly as it doesn't include women and or any people of color, but now non-property white men can vote, which is at least a little bit bigger. We're following a string of two-term presidents. So the era of good feelings, which is James Monroe's presidency, which I love. Uh, We should have more eras of good feelings. Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe have all been relatively successful as two-term presidents. And they had all previously, before they become president, been Secretary of State. Today, Secretary of State is not a path to being the president of the United States. But back then, it was the path. It was the thing. It was seen as the role you had to have. Yes. Um, And so this is like your stepping stone to becoming president. This is the way to do it. You have international experience. You're at the the right hand of the president for a number of years. This is the way to get get you there. Uh, And the secretary of state for James Monroe, secretary of state is John Quincy Adams. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He's seen as next up. The vice president is ill and very quickly is going to withdraw from the contest. He does not want to be president. He's like done with politics and wants to take his chips and go home. Uh, So John Quincy Adams is the guy. Let me, I just want to note something else that Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, I'll share a couple of things I'll share. They're all Southerners, right? So we've had six years of Southern presidents, really Southern landed gentry, as it were. They're also all enslavers and all very much uh, within kind of the institution and support of keeping slavery and expanding slavery. Um, So we talk about this in so many episodes because it is so important to the political process of every election and every big legislative fight in this era is who's going to stay on the side of keeping the system that so many people are benefiting from. So I want to mention that because John Quincy Adams, while he has incredible pedigree, you really don't get a better political resume than 
John Quincy Adams, the man was literally born into politics. Of our first five presidents, his father is kind of the outlier, right? He's the New England abolitionist. And John Quincy Adams is very similar. And so while Quincy Adams definitely has the role, the Secretary of State job, he has this extensive background and experience in politics. He has the network. He doesn't quite, after six years of this kind of Southern slave-owning president, for some voters, particularly in the South, he's not going to be ideal because he is definitely a pivot back to something they're not thrilled about. Yes. And you're seeing, and we'll talk more about the sort of insidious nature of the three-fifths compromise a little bit later on, but that is very much what's happening here. That's why the uh, four of the first five presidents are Southern. In fact, are Virginian. They're not even like Southern generally, like Washington and Jefferson and Monroe and, and uh, Madison are all Virginia planners. They're like practically neighbors. So this is really, you're seeing how much the three-fifths compromise has inflated uh, the which is exactly what the South wanted it to do, clearly. Uh, and so then we're getting John Quincy Adams. And again, you don't get a lot more better political resumes than him. He's been everything. He's been ambassador. He's traveled extensively. He's been um, all over the place. He is, however, while his whole life has been devoted to public service and he is a good and dedicated public servant, John Quincy Adams lacks a little bit in the charisma department. He's a smart man. He's incredibly smart, but he's not really like, and that's okay back then. We don't have TV, you know, there's not, he doesn't have to like, like be on Twitter and be funny. Like that's, (laughs) it's a different sort of ideal back then, but he sort of lacks in the charisma department a little (laughs) It's his wife, Louisa, who has all the charm and charisma and has actually really bolstered his time as Secretary of State. She's been a real boon. She's cultured. She was born abroad. um, So she's just very sophisticated. And she's kind of helped smooth him a little Mm -hmm. bit, which is why he's enjoyed a pretty successful run as Secretary of State. But the man's he's not charismatic. He's a bundle of daddy issues. Oh, my God. So many. There was a really good Father's Day quote that came along that was basically like, every time I realize that I'm not a good dad, I just look at, I look one generation up and understand why. Like the man just really (laughs) struggled. He was tough. Yes. And his dad's still alive at this point. It's true. John Adams is still, he's in his late 80s at this point. He is not, um, he's not politically active. He's in retirement at home in Boston, but he is still alive. So it actually is Thomas Jefferson, as it turns out. So that's part of this too. What a shadow, you know, looming over you. And it's it's one of those things where the name recognition is helpful, right? It's helpful that he's the son of a, a president that people remember. And for the most part, we're by the 1820s really kind of revering the founding generation 50 years out. And there's enough distance to sort of be like, whether I was politically with them, I respect what they did. But it's also a little bit of a burden, right? He's not his dad. And uh, that's a bit of a struggle. So when you have a guy like this, who's kind of got the resume, but little insecure, little snippy, little maybe hard to get along with, not super charismatic, it opens the door for other opportunities. And there's a few other candidates out there who may not have much, but they, they have charisma. Oh, yeah. Charisma leads us to Andrew Jackson, inevitably. <laughs> sigh. List sigh. In our notes, guys, it's literally Andrew Jackson and then sigh. Like, Pause for pause for sighing. Pause for sighing. <laughs> Andrew Jackson is a war hero. 
a bunch of times. The Battle of New Orleans, the War of 1812, he's the Native, the Indian Wars. He was territorial governor of Florida. He was held prisoner of war as a teenager in the American Revolution. So this is a guy who's got some bona fides from the military absolutely he's a larger than life personality andrew jackson he's a big thing he's very populist he's wildly popular and the thing about andrew jackson i feel like at the time there's a lot of objections to him one of them is that he's too populist for the powers that be and he's too like every man for the powers that be there's this a very sense and this is henry clay is going to really embody this that you know jackson's a little too tainted by ordinary people that's going to become a thing i am by no means a jackson apologist no. but when you look at those five got first five presidents you look at john quincy adams you look at some of the other men we're going to be talking about jackson is the outlier because oh, he yeah. born and raised on the frontier you know out on the West, dealing with issues too that many of these men have not had to deal with, dealing with the problems and legitimate violence and difficulties of the frontier. He does not have any of the sort of connections that a lot of these men have. So there is a lot of language and a lot of objection coming from the elites, for lack of a better term here. But you can understand why Jackson becomes in many ways this populist hero, because he is more like the everyman, and they don't like that about him. And that's going to be sort of the um, one of the charges sort of lobbed against him is he is too ordinary. He's too every man. But if you're an everyday white voter who just recently got the right to vote, you know, you may not love the elites. So Jackson has an appeal. And so I'm not an apologist in many ways, but I understand where that appeal comes from and why he's building such a popular base. And Jackson is going to be Sort of, this is the era where people are interested in running for president, but at the same time, they really need to be asked to run for president. And so he's like courted. He, you know, publicly will say, well, I don't know if I want to be. And it's, I find this whole, like a lot of politicians of this era do this dance and I find it to be a little bit disingenuous. And you're not campaigning, right? But you're also definitely totally going around and giving speeches, but it's not campaigning. Right. And I'm not interested, but I'm also not staying at home and being quiet either. So it's a little But like, if you want to keep if you want to keep telling people I should be president, I'm cool with that. Yeah. But I'm not I'm not running. I'm not but you could tell people that they should vote for me. I'm not interested in being president, but if you think I'd be a good president, who am I to say no? Right. <laughs> So there's a lot of that. And he's going to run for Senate in the midst of all of this. So like in the middle of this campaign, Jackson runs and is elected to the Senate. And John Quincy Adams sees Jackson star on the rise and is immediately going to ask him to be his vice president. And Jackson is 1000% not into that. Jackson doesn't want to be anybody's <laughs> vice president. Thank you very, very much. Um, Could you imagine? I just. Oh my God. It would have been a nightmare. <laughs> Um, the other major candidates, Henry Clay, we did a whole episode about Henry Clay. He's the Speaker of the House at this time. He's from Kentucky. And William Crawford. William Crawford is older and sort of a more traditional states rights Democrat. He had been the war secretary and was at that time the incumbent treasury secretary. So again, cabinet secretary seen as a path towards running for a bigger and higher office. William Crawford is a little bit older, a little bit more traditional. And in the midst of this campaign, he's going to suffer a stroke. 
So while they're running for president, he does not withdraw, but it does severely limit his ability and sort of there's questions about his health uh, and things like that. I also should briefly at least mention John C. Calhoun, who is at least in the mix at first and then very quickly decides he's not going to be president. Let's let these other guys fight it out for president and he will throw his hat in the ring to be vice president, which spoiler alert is what ends up happening. But this is kind of where we are. He has no qualms about being VP. Calhoun's like, uh, this job's better than no job, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds really good to me. Uh, I just wanted to mention with Crawford, too, while his name of the guys we're talking about right now, probably the least memorable today, um, I think, you know, certainly if you listen to the pod, you've heard Clay and Calhoun. Crawford was, though, quite connected among members of the party. This is primarily all, they're all Democratic Republicans for the most part, with the exception of John Quincy Adams. But among his party, he's quite well respected. And in fact, sort of this unofficial caucus sort of decided, I think we should have all kind of back Crawford. He's he's a little bit more traditional. He's a little bit more moderate. But this is, I think, the guy that we can back. And uh, several state legislatures will be like, hey, wait a second. We didn't all agree to this caucus thing that you're talking about. But Crawford had the support of a lot of important members of his party. Right. He had support on the Hill. So um, while his name is not as notable today, he really was, prior to the stroke as particularly, a pretty viable candidate within his own party. People saw him as very potentially able to win this. Yes. And so those are the four major candidates. And it this all sounds confusing. It's because it was. Um, the Federalists Party has essentially at this point collapsed. So they're all essentially running as Democrat Republicans, which is really confusing to us in the modern era. They all get nominated by different states. There is a sort of very corrupt congressional nomination that is going to nominate Crawford, but it is seen as illegitimate. And different states are going to support different people. For example, Martin Van Buren is in his political machine in New York is going to support Crawford. But it's all, it's a mess. Uh, and so you have these four major candidates, all nominated by at least one state legislature. And th that's kind of how the campaign goes. Now, of course, in these those days, they don't actually go out and campaign either. So it's not like we would see today them going around and having big rallies and stuff like that. Because they're so relatively similar, um, they're in the same party, they're going to have other people do a lot of this. They actually have basically songs and sing them. They're like political songs, which is really amazing to me. I love the idea that you'd recreate a song for a political candidate. Yeah, I will just note, too, that this is a little bit of a slight turning point into how campaigning presidential elections are going to start to change because there is one candidate who, while he's not organizing these rallies, is encouraging others to have rallies in his name, and that's Andrew Jackson. And he's not just doing this in his state. He's going to go what we would identify as swing states, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Indiana, uh, even places like New York and New Jersey, which on paper, it doesn't seem like Jackson would have much support. But again, you now have a new group of white men who are allowed to vote that are not landowners, aren't property owners. And Jackson and the people around him see that those guys may really like this outside candidate. So Jackson sort of encourages these rallies in his name organized by supporters. And so you've got one candidate who's actually going out to other states or has somebody in his apparatus going out to other states saying, hey, have you heard about this Andrew Jackson guy? He's one of you. And so this is really the first time in American history that's happened. And it's going to be a bit of a sea change in how 
campaigning is going to change. It's not just about the regional support. It's about, can you be nationwide? Can you get appeal outside of your own state and region? Right. And they're also like, they are like, they don't, aren't really involved in running their own political campaigns. The volunteers do this. They have partisans. And so people who speak on their behalf, they'll run political cartoons and op-eds and papers and stuff like that. But there's not an active campaign schedule the way that we would have today. And Jackson is seen as the everyman. John Quincy Adams is seen as elite. And it's real easy to paint him as elite. He's kind of standoffish. He's obviously got the political pedigree. He's already in power. Jackson is this upstart who's coming from nowhere to sort of disrupt things. The only job John Quincy Adams has ever had are political. Uh, it's the only thing he's ever done. And when I say, only, I mean, from the time he was a teenager, this is all he's ever done. So it's easy to sort of paint him as out of touch, uh, you know, ivory tower, East Coast elite, the New England thing, the being a vocal voice against slavery thing. All of this makes him seem or can allows him to be painted as out of touch with the common man. Yes. And John Quincy Adams does not have a common touch. She just doesn't. Like some people don't. <laughs> no. uh, Adams doesn't. Jackson does. Jackson's really got a common touch. He's got the war hero thing. You know, that's exciting. And so the election happens. And guess what? Nobody wins. <laughs> We talk about Jackson on a couple tours, but I always talk about how we have lived through some crazy elections, y'all. But we have not really had an election from Electoral College and popular vote count quite like 1824 again, because it's right. it's crazy, the results, the way this breaks down. It's nuts. So in those days, there are 261 electoral votes up for grabs. So significantly fewer than we have today. Winner takes all with 131 electoral college votes. So that is the like magic number we need to get to. So let's see. And no one does. Let's see. <laughs> let's break this down. Jackson. Jackson gets the most popular votes and is the only one with a national appeal. He's going to get win states in a broad coalition around the country. He gets 151,000 votes, which is 41% of the total cast. Uh, and 99 electoral college votes. John Quincy Adams takes mostly New England, 113,000, which is 30% of the total cast, and 84 electoral college votes. Crawford, Middle South, about 41,000 votes, 11.2%, and 41 electoral college votes. And Clay, Kentucky in the West, which the West was considerably smaller back then, he gets 47,000 votes, which actually is more than Crawford, by a lot. He gets 13%, but only 37 electoral college votes because of how where the votes break down. So he gets fewer electoral college votes than Crawford, which means Crawford is in third place and Clay is in fourth place. This is all very confusing. We note here for a second, I will also mention in addition to this very confusing breakdown, Jackson is has the most electoral college votes at 99, but that is still far short of the 131 that he needs to win. So part of this, though, part of his plurality is because of the three-fifths compromise. So the three-fifths compromise is going to inflate the South's numbers. They have numbers disproportionate to the number of white persons that are voting because they're counting three-fifths of all African-Americans who are enslaved and cannot vote. So they're counting them as part of the South total, even though none of the candidates are speaking to any of their issues. They are just literally being counted 
so that the white Southerners can inflate their numbers in Congress and in the Electoral College. So the Electoral College results would have been 83 for Adams and 77 for Jackson without the inflated Electoral College vote. So basically, John Quincy Adams would have stayed almost the same, but Jackson's numbers would have reduced significantly. He would have lost over 20 Electoral College votes. That's how inflated the system is. It gives him 20 more electoral college votes than he otherwise should have had, than the the numbers of the voting population would suggest that he would have. Crawford also benefits in this regard, since several of his electoral college states are in slave states. So that means Crawford should have finished last and not Clay. So it's confusing. And if you need to like take a second to redo that, go ahead. But basically the nugget here is Jackson does not quite win gets the most number of electoral college votes, but only because the three-fifths compromise gives him a leg up that he should not otherwise have had. I was told there would be no math, Rebecca. <laughs> You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Um, and, you know, if you're Andrew Jackson, this has to be frustrating because Crawford isn't really a viable candidate. The man is not in good health. Clay feels like a spoiler. Yeah. Right. Clay's coming essentially for a lot of his same base and region and is also benefiting from the same sort Mm -hmm. of inflation. And it's like if either one of those candidates had dropped or thrown their support to Jackson, then that's it. It's electoral college win. So if you're Jackson, this is very frustrating. And if you're anyone else who doesn't think Jackson should be president, this is a window of opportunity. It very much is. And Henry Clay hates Jackson hates him. There's a quote that I just love. And Clay says this of Jackson. I cannot believe that killing 2,500 Englishmen at New Orleans qualifies for the various difficult and complicated duties of the chief magistracy. (laughs) That's a burn, friends. That's what that is. That is a burn. So Clay is not going to throw his support behind Jackson. That's not a thing. And so now that there's no clear majority, what happens next, Becca? Well, we have a little thing called the 12th Amendment. I'll say this about the framers. They were, you know, in some ways quite smart. We'll take three-fifths compromise, not so much. But they figured kind of wisely, in, especially based on how elections were going to go, that there would probably always be four or five candidates, that it would be more common than not that someone not meet the electoral college threshold, which I know if you are listening today and you've lived through mostly 20th and 21st century elections seems strange, but it's actually quite smart. And uh, they thought this would happen more often. And so they did come up with a process for how to deal with this. If no one has a clear electoral college majority, the election is thrown to the House, the House of Representatives which sort of makes some sense. You elect people to be in the House of Representatives. Um, This is, and and in this era, this is the House to which you are directly electing people to serve as opposed to the Senate at the time. But the way in which this breaks down makes it all of a sudden a real horse race. Each state gets one vote. So you are voting en bloc, as it were. So at the time, there are 24 states and you just need you know, 50 plus one. So you need 13. So you just have to get 13 votes in the House to win this election, (laughs) which all of a sudden you are taking what was a very complex regional division election 
with all this, as you mentioned, to the inflation of the three-fifths compromise, and now we're saying, all right, 24 people get to decide who is president of the United States. And let me just say, up top, if you're one of those common man, Mm. everyday guys who likely cast a vote for Jackson, and then you read in your local paper that, well, nobody's won, and now it's going to the House and 24 guys are going to decide, you may start to go, wait a second. I don't think this is supposed to work that way. I mean, Jackson won the popular vote. So why, why are now 24 people in the House deciding? You can already, I think, get a sense of people starting to go, well, I don't love that this is the fallback. Right. So a little constitutional background. The founders trusted the ordinary people, but really not at all. And so they designed the system essentially so that it would go to the House of Representatives. They thought it would go more often than it wouldn't, uh, that you'd have a bunch of qualified candidates. And I don't object to that part. Like the idea that we have multiple qualified people running for the highest office in the land is good. It's good for democracy. But then they're basically taking this massively good thing and throwing it to the House in a very undemocratic way. So it doesn't matter how many people are in the House, how many legislators you vote on block with your state. And what that effectively means is that Virginia is the most populous Southern state, for example, they get one vote. But also at the time, Illinois only has one one representative in the house so he gets one vote so it's just him and so all of a sudden like the whole politics and the whole this all shifts around and becomes a very different horse race than it had been and i can see i'm not a jackson apologist either at all but i can see the point you know like you can see how people would say "Hmm, i don't know this doesn't seem right and let's be honest, what Joe Q. Public is thinking about when he goes to the ballot box is going to be different than Jeremiah K. Congressman. I'm trying to think of a fancier sounding name. Uh, you know, Ebenezer Congress dude is going to be concerned with because those in the House voting are looking at these candidates through a different lens. They're looking at what are my priorities? What am I concerned about? How am I going to get my legislation through? Is this person going to be supportive to my politics? Is this person going to keep things even keeled because I have financial interests? There's just a very different lens to which these states and representatives are going to be voting. And this is not a quick process. They are not going to vote till February of 1825, February 9th to be exact. So there is some time for some politicking between the general election and this vote in the House of Representatives months months of this happens you know so again back then the new president wasn't sworn in until march 4th so we don't move that back until the 20th century so at this point because of travel and it takes a long time we have a big country what are you going to do things take a little bit of time so february 9th is this critical vote in the house and this is where we get to henry clay spoiler yeah First of all, he's a candidate, right? He's mm-hmm. one of these guys, but he's also the Speaker of the House, which means he is the most important player in determining this outcome because you are like the traffic cop mm-hmm. in the House and you get to set the agenda and the tone and he knows all these representatives pretty darn well. So Henry Clay is now in a very good position despite having the least number of electoral college votes. So Henry Clay's been eliminated as a candidate. He's the fourth of four, so he's out. So it's only going to be the top three. Crawford, the sick guy, Jackson, the populist, and John Quincy Adams, the secretary of state. So Henry Clay, though, because he's speaker, is like, he's like the inside man. And so all of a sudden, 
he's the prettiest girl at the dance. All they all want to hang out with Henry Clay at this point. They're all courting him and, you know, kind of wanting to be his pal. Henry Clay, as I previously mentioned, cannot stand Andrew Jackson. Like that's not the thing that's going to change either. Uh, they are very much unfriendly to each other. And Henry Clay wants to be secretary of state because that's the path to being president which is what he ultimately wants to be. And so he has decided that he's going to, um, he can play Kingmaker. There's also other people who want to play Kingmaker as well. Van Buren in New York wants to be Kingmaker. So he's going to throw his weight around. Kentucky is going to swing to John Quincy Adams. And now where, who, Becca, who is from Kentucky? Henry Clay. Henry Clay is from Kentucky. And here's the thing. While, you know, we were sort of saying, all of these, for lack of better clarity, they're all Democratic Republicans. A lot of these guys are old Federalists. There are still some Federalist loyalty there. And Clay's able to sort of push some support to John Quincy Adams in that kind of old Federalist vein of, hey, too much power in the hands of the states maybe means that too many common folk are going to have too much say in what's going on. So if you can kind of yeah. lean into that, you know, federalist ideal, Clay's going to massage that in John Quincy Adams' favor and get some of, you know, these states that we might think would have swung to Jackson, there's still, you know, these guys in the House are federalists at heart, which is not a bad thing. I'm not, I'm not anti-federalist, right. but this is sort of how Clay is going to push them to support John Quincy Adams. And you can also really see like Henry Clay go to these people and be like, do you really want to trust Andrew Jackson? I don't know. He seems like a wild card. Maybe JQA is better. And basically what happens is like in, for example, New York run by Martin Van Buren, there's 12 representatives from New York, but they have to agree. And so basically the majority rules. So they're going to go for, they're divided at first. And Van Buren also has ambitions to go bigger and better, spoiler alert. Uh, and so he is going to basically push them uh, into supporting one or the other. And so they're, they go kind of back and forth. Same idea in Kentucky. Basically, their delegation splits for Adams. And so their vote goes to Adams. And so because of all of this, what ends up happening is Kentucky swings things to John Quincy Adams, giving him the presidency, gives him 13 electoral or 13 votes in the House, uh, on the first ballot. And so they only go through one and he wins. Yay. Yay, which makes no one happy. <laughs> Except John Quincy Adams, obviously. He's thrilled. Uh, but no one else He's is thrilled uh, until he realizes being president isn't really all it's cracked up to be. Especially when you're riding in on not exactly a wave of overwhelming support. Yeah. John Quincy Adams is basically hand-strung. Like he's won. This is the, the definition of like winning but yet losing at the same time. So he's won, he's going to be president, but also like he's had his knee, he's been kneecapped out of the gate. You are, first of all, you're now overly burdened to the people who got you there, right? You you owe everybody. So there's that. And people are going to not be quiet about that. He has to deal with a lot of, hey, buddy, we got you there mentality. And a vast number of people across the country see you as an illegitimate president. And the man who loses to you is going to spend four years telling everybody that it is illegitimate. Right. It looks like there's been corruption. It looks like you're already illegitimate. And Andrew Jackson's livid, super angry all the time. He says that Henry Clay has betrayed him. He will charge that Henry Clay came to him and offered to throw his support to Jackson 
if you Jackson would make Henry Clay Secretary of State. Basically, then, and he says, then obviously Henry Clay made the same bargain with John Quincy Adams, and he calls it a corrupt bargain. Yeah, th- that phrase comes from Andrew Jackson. <laughs> it really does. And it's kind of catchy. It is catchy. Um, yeah. And then a few days later, goes from bad to worse. We've already got Jackson, who's already stewing about this. He has, and in Jackson's defense, he has actually won the popular vote and more electoral college votes than John Quincy Adams. And suddenly John Quincy Adams is going to be president and Henry Clay kind of made that happen. And then John Quincy Adams announces who his secretary of state is going to be for his upcoming administration. And Becca, who is that? It's Henry Clay. It's Henry Clay. And so, you know, there's, on on the face, you can see it. It's also what I would just call above board politicking, right? This is what politics is. It is building alliances and owing favors. I mean, so much of our system is built on this that while it is, you know, it's not hard to see how this happens, whether it's corruption or just the system operating the way in which it is designed to operate is a question. But for Jackson, I think, you know, if you look to specifically at three states that he won overwhelmingly, Illinois, Maryland, and Louisiana, during the general election, and then all three of those had congressmen who basically defected away from him to vote in favor of John Quincy Adams, you're really angry. You're seeing pressure, or what seems like pressure and manipulation being put on these representatives to undermine the will of the people. And Jackson... He he packs up his toys and goes home a little bit. He resigns his seat in the U.S. Senate uh, and he says, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm going to go out. I don't want to be part of I want to be part of this Washington muck. I don't want to be inside the beltway. I don't want to be I don't want the stink of this on me. And uh, I'm going to basically give myself four years of telling everybody how terrible you are and how corrupt you are and how those people in Washington don't trust the everyday American. Right. And they'll have your back. Hmm. So the other thing that John Quincy Adams does offer Jackson a seat in his cabinet, he offers him the position of secretary of war and Jackson's like, no, 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 I'm out of here. Like, (laughs) this is not cool. John Calhoun, John C. Calhoun is vice president. John C. Calhoun had basically played both sides across the middle and essentially wins. Um, He is not, does not really align with any of John Quincy Adams's policies, but he really wants to be vice president because he figures he's going to be president someday. And so for that reason, he will oppose Henry Clay's appointment of Secretary of State. Of course. (laughs) Because, right, of course. And so this is basically from the gate, his cabinet is deteriorating. His relationship with his vice president is very quickly going to go sour, which isn't the end of the world. Vice presidents don't do a whole lot. But also, like, there's charges of corruption, there's infighting in the administration, and it is very, very easy for Jackson to essentially go home and spend four years being like, "Mm, I would have done it better. That's not cool. Look at all that. Mm, It's not me. And when we say that Jackson goes, I mean, Jackson starts campaigning essentially for 1828 immediately. His own state, his state legislature nominates him for president within months of John Quincy Adams' inauguration. So it is late 1824, and they've already decided who's running in 1828. So again, this is new. No, up to this point in American history, no one is picking a candidate three to four years out, but that's the the anger and the fervor. And so Jackson really does get three years of campaigning. So imagine 
again, this has never happened. John Quincy Adams, his entire presidency already has somebody campaigning against him. Yes. And so he's weakened out of the gate and he's going to spend four years with someone undermining every single thing he does. And he's got infighting in his own cabinet. In fact, John C. Calhoun in 1826, so not even two years into this administration, John C. Calhoun will uh, endorse Jackson for president in 1828. So your own vice president, the one person in your cabinet you cannot fire, (laughs) has endorsed your rival for an election that is two years away. It's insane. You gotta, you feel, you gotta feel a little I bit for John do. Quincy Adams. I, I really kind of do. I do I feel a lot for John Quincy Adams? I actually, he was actually a decent president, but he just has nowhere to go. Like, and Henry Clay, like, this is a, they have an alliance, but it's, you know, if you're John Quincy Adams, you very much know that Henry Clay's alliance with you is because it benefits Henry Clay, and the second that it doesn't benefit Henry Clay, he's gonna knife him in the back. That's very much where John Quincy Adams is. He's got no friends or anybody he can really count on. It's not like him and Henry Clay have this solid political partnership. This is a, a expedience. Uh, and so the corrupt bargain ends up like really being a, a corruption that benefits Jackson as much as it like does not. Yeah. And imagine, I mean, Adams in many ways owes his presidency to the House, and yet Congress turns around and rewards him by basically never supporting his agenda. Everything he wants to do is basically defeated in Congress to a point of like, Adams is like, we should have a Naval Academy. That's a good idea. We should be training people to be in the U.S. Navy. And Congress is like, nah, (laughs) what a terrible idea. Like everything that just seems like bipartisan, they're just like, no. So then, of course, he's not getting anything accomplished. There's nothing in his domestic or foreign agenda that he's really trying to do that can be successfully done. And so it's not at all surprising that Jackson is going to be so clearly the front runner, even though John Quincy Adams is the incumbent in 1828. And I do want to note that in the 1828 election, in the campaign, more than twice the number of voters would vote than from 1824. So it's not just that Jackson's able to kind of turn the minds of people who'd voted previously uh, with kind of these accusations of like your vote didn't count. You know, they're not they're not really listening to you. But he riles up and, you know, encourages a lot more people, everyday people to get engaged in politics to vote. So to double more than double Mm -hmm. the number of voters in four years is incredible. And we have almost never seen a jump that high since in terms of voter turnout. Yep. It's really an amazing feat that Jackson brings a lot of people into the process through this charges of corruption. And it really, John Quincy Adams, not to to spoil another election, but in 1828, he doesn't really stand a chance. Jackson just rides that populist wave right on into the White House. Uh, And so it's just such an interesting example of how the bargaining and the wheeling and dealing that goes on sometimes really hurts the people who win the bargain as much as it hurts the people who lose the bargain. Yeah. And as you said, frankly, it gives Jackson the perfect opening, the perfect thing to run on for four years. So he is the biggest benefactor of this. He gets with, honestly, it works out really well for Andrew Jackson. 
Right. And he has the added bonus of being able to say, hey, you know, I'm for you and your popular will is being thwarted by these elites. Like the ad copy, like practically writes itself. I am your guy and they don't want you in power. You know, it's a very easy message to that Jackson crafts and then basically hits home for four years. He spends four years. He's not in a public office, so he can just go around the country and give speeches. He spends a lot of time at the Hermitage where his home in Tennessee, but he basically is a candidate running for four years and criticizing every single thing that John Quincy Adams does, which isn't that much because Congress has turned against him. So it's poor John Quincy Adams. I have a lot of sympathy for him. Yeah. I mean, you know, your VP, your VP is endorsing another guy two years later, you know, your secretary of state's only thinking about his own career. You have like, you have nobody who has your back. And, you know, we, we talk about John Quincy Adams a lot here. I think the best part of his life is his post-presidential career and his long legacy in the House when he returns to the House of Representatives. But it's it's a hard four years. Uh, and it makes him, you know, I guess again, spoilers too, but makes him uh, at the time only the second man to have only served one term of, <clears throat> as president. And that's him and his dad. So he shares his that dad. with his father, yeah. which it's not ideal, I think, for him. And he also, the other coda to J John Quincy Adams that I, this is the thing about him that I love the most. He loses badly in 1828. He's so bitter about it. He does not attend the inauguration of Andrew Jackson. Like he basically skips out of town and is like, I'm out. He goes home to Massachusetts to his home congressional district outside of Boston and basically says to the people, hey, if you elect me to Congress, I will frustrate Andrew Jackson as much as I am able for as long as I am able. And that's exactly what they do. They send him in 1830, the midterm election, Jackson's very first midterm, they send John Quincy Adams back to the House of Representatives and he spends the next six years basically bothering Andrew Jackson at literally every turn, um, speaking out against him in a public forum, the whole thing. And so it's really just it's a, such a great example of, first of all, how smart John Quincy Adams actually was. Uh, and second of all, how there's nothing new in politics. Like people are bitter about each other and it's just kind of the way things go. Um, and John Quincy Adams will then continue to serve. He actually serves nine terms in the House of Representatives after be, be, uh, ending his presidency. So he has a successful And I will um, like to believe that in, you know, 2023, of, of the two men, John Quincy Adams has the more significant legacy and uh, I think the, the, the better, the better long-term approval uh, than Andrew Jackson. But yeah, but 1824, it's, it's such an yeah. important election for the country. It's such an important turning point in how we start thinking about elections, how we start thinking about presidential candidates, how we're starting to really see um, the power of those at the top weaken a little bit in terms of determining who gets to be president of the United States. Uh, we'll see this kind of playing out in other key elections that we've talked about, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I think looking back at these elections with multiple candidates, looking at these elections where there's no clear front runner are so telling because, again, that's what the framers thought it would be. Um, and it's a little bit more a reflection of the system they thought we would have. So I always find it fascinating to kind of go back to these yeah. 19th century elections. And there's also so much of a through line with things that we talk about today, the idea of the everyman, the idea of running against the elites, that's all 
present day. That's all very modern, uh, but it's also, it's always been there. So we talked about this when we did 1840. Uh, we talked about this when we did 1976. We talk, we'll talk about this again. Like this is a through line in American politics. We want somebody who is like us. We want, and it, a lot of, you never are going to lose really in American politics by painting somebody as elite and East Coast. And, you know, um, uh, that's always been a path to power. So it starts in the at this point and has never really gone away the corrupt bargain awesome that was the corrupt bargain amazing, a little bit um, amazing i just uh <laughs> not that i relish talking about andrew jackson but i do relish talking about this time period so this is fun, a fun topic thank you all as always for coming along with us we appreciate you so much again a shout out to our patrons we love you guys um we are gearing up for the rest of the summer and we're starting to make plans for the next year of the podcast the next season which is crazy so if you um have topics you want to hear about things you want us to cover uh shoot us an email tourguidetell all at gmail.com find us on the socials uh give us give us a tweet or a ping on instagram let us know what you're interested in but we appreciate you we're so glad to have you listening and we will see you next time thanks everybody bye